Kia ora and welcome to Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. On Friday the 11th of March 2022, we held a webinar on the proposed Social Unemployment Insurance Scheme. Listen to our experts as they share their insights and perspectives on the proposed new scheme, the public policy making and processes, the economic and social impacts and what it all means for New Zealand workers. Thank you very much for joining this Spotlight Lecture webinar, which is focusing on the government's proposed social insurance scheme. My name is Max Rashbrook. Uh, I'm a senior associate at the Institute for Governance and Policy Studies. Joining me is Simon Chappell, uh, who's the director of the Institute for Governance uh, and Policy Studies. And we will be taking, I think, sort of relatively supportive and relatively unsupportive uh, views of the government's proposal, which I think is a, is a good thing. Uh, it's nice to see a bit of discussion. I think too often to quote Toby Manhire, panels like this involve a robust exchange of the same views. And I think Simon and I would definitely have slightly different views on this, although of course with uh, some areas of agreement. Um, hopefully it'll be an informative discussion. Um, Simon and I will speak for 15 to 20 minutes each, and then there'll be a chance for Q&A. Now the organisers, and I want to say a big thank you to Melanie Crawford from Victoria University of Wellington for organising this. They have asked that if people have questions, uh, they use the Q&A function within Zoom to submit it in written form, and we will then, you know, take those questions, and I think you can uh, like and sort of lend support to other questions as they come up, so we'll probably aim to answer the most popular ones. But anyway, try to get through as many as possible um, at the end of the session. Okay, so without any further ado, I will give you some brief-ish thoughts on social insurance, which I guess I come to as someone who has a research interest in income in inequality, in wealth inequality indeed. Now, I'll just, I mean, I'm assuming that, that everyone who's here, you know, knows a bit about social insurance already. But just to make sure we're all on the same page, a very quick, very quick summary of what's being proposed. Essentially, it, what is being proposed is a scheme in which employers and employees each contribute um, a small levy, sort of about, I think it's 1.39% of salary uh, is the proposal. And that goes into a social insurance fund, essentially. If employees are then made redundant, and they've made contributions for six months of the preceding 18 months, they are entitled to a payment set at 80% of their salary up to a cap for six months. During that time, they'll be given access to what are known as active labour market policies, so assistance with retraining and finding a, a new job that's suitable. Uh, and so the hope is obviously at the end of that six-month period, they return to the paid workforce and some kind of sort of cushion is provided for them during that time. But if not, then they go on to the standard welfare system. And this is a scheme that is uh, common in most OECD countries. Um, New Zealand is one of only a very small number um, that don't currently have some kind of social insurance scheme. It's a concept that obviously doesn't have a long history in New Zealand, but there has been some discussion in recent years. Jonathan Boston, for instance, in his 2019 book, Transforming the Welfare State, uh, included some discussion of social insurance. It then really came into the public eye, I suppose, with the COVID pandemic, the associated uh, lockdown, the government's COVID response, 
and things like the COVID uh, recovery payments that were made to people who are in work. And that sort of sparked a discussion about economic shocks and how to cushion the effects of potential job loss. Um, so I was writing about social insurance in that context in mid-2020, I guess, which, you know, strange as it is, is almost two years ago. Social insurance was then included in uh, discussed briefly in part of Labour's manifesto in its COVID-19 revenue policy. There is a line that says, we have also committed to investigating, along with Business New Zealand and the Council of Trade Unions, a social insurance scheme to protect New Zealanders' incomes and support their retraining if they lose their jobs. And there was a small amount of coverage of the idea on Morning Reports and on interest.co.nz and a couple of other places. Now, obviously, this would be a significant change to New Zealand's arrangements as regard job loss and insurance against major economic shocks. Projected cost of the scheme at over $3 billion annually is, is significant in terms of New Zealand public spending. And it's obviously important to, to think about the rationale for it. And the rationale that the government is leaning on, principally, Oh, and sorry, and I should say um, briefly that the proposal has been developed through what's called a tripartite process, so between government, business and unions, and that's resulted in a 178-page discussion document. Uh, it's out for consultation at the moment until 26th of April. It'll then go through the standard select committee process, I assume, and my understanding then is that it will be in law before the 2023 general election, but not actually up and running. So there'll presumably be another significant opportunity to debate it then. And given the poll last night, presumably, and Nationals' opposition, stated opposition to it, presumably a real chance that it won't be implemented. Anyway, so coming back to the rationale for social insurance, um, the rationale that the government is leaning on is probably at least twofold. And really, it's about minimizing the impacts of job loss. So people would be eligible for the social insurance payments if they experienced involuntary job loss, or if they're made redundant, or if they're unable to work because of illness. And I think in the, the, the rationale around social insurance starts from an observation that by the standards of developed countries, New Zealand workers are pretty poorly uh, protected against these kinds of events. That's certainly the conclusion of a recent OECD report. Unlike most developed countries, we don't have uh, a form of social insurance. We don't have compulsory redundancy policies or things like that. And possibly as a result of that, um, New Zealand workers suffer quite significant levels of um, what I believe economists call wage scarring. And so it's a sense that after job loss, when people do go back into the paid workforce, uh, it is often at a much lower rate of pay than they were previously on. And work done independently by Motu, I believe, shows that that wage scarring can be quite significant. People who experience involuntary job loss a year later, I think their income is 25% lower. And even five years later, it's 15% lower. So that's, that's quite significant. And I think just at a more perhaps basic sort of human level, of course, you know, unexpected job loss is, is a huge shock and can be incredibly disruptive for individuals and for their families. Because at the moment, if you lose your job, you go straight on to the core benefit system, which is, you know, pretty inadequate. And that's a point that I'll come back to in a moment. And so that's potentially, that 
potentially represents an enormous economic shock. I mean, you have to try to, you know, keep paying the mortgage, you have to try to keep hold of your house, you have to try to keep meeting other commitments you've incurred, you know, with the expectation of a regular salary. And the fact of not being able to do that can be extraordinarily disruptive, even devastating, I think, for families. And so there's a desire to try and cushion that shock for a period of at least six months by ensuring that people have 80% of their previous salary. So the reasonable replacement rate, and that's time in which people can recover from the shock, can sort of hold their lives together, think about you know, their next step, think about how do they get back into the paid workforce. And that sort of ties into the other sort of main rationale, I think, for social insurance, which is about ensuring that people find the right jobs. Because, of course, one of the effects you can have, and you see this in things like, you know, unemployed Air New Zealand workers, thanks to the pandemic, working, you know, stacking shelves in the supermarket. Not that there's anything wrong with that as a job, but it's clearly not making the best use of their skills. But it's the one that they've taken because they've felt, you know, compelled to, because the cushioning otherwise for that job loss is so is so weak. So there's, I mean, in the, yeah, you have to be clear that the, the evidence on this is not, certainly not cut and dried, but I think there is at least a plausible argument that a social insurance payment, six months at 80% of your previous salary up to a cap, will allow people to make more considered choices about how they get back into the paid workforce. It'll increase their opportunity to take the right job, you know, a job that's in comparable area, assuming one still exists, rather than just having to take the first one that comes along out of desperation. Allied to that, the social insurance proposal talks about the need to increase those active labour market programmes, those active supports that help people retrain, which will be particularly important if they're an industry which is experiencing significant disruption, you know, all their skills have become redundant or less useful, and they need to retrain, they need to match their skills to the new jobs that the new economy is offering. And now, personally, I think that some of the predictions about widespread job loss and things like that in the future have been overstated. I think there's been some scaremongering around that. Nonetheless, it's plausible that with increasing automation and the changes wrought by climate change, there might be at least a modest increase in that kind of turnover precarity in future. And it's also notable on that point, I think, that New Zealanders have some of the most precarious economic situations uh, in the developed world on some measures. The OECD has a measure about how many people have enough savings that they could maintain themselves, I think, for three months at the poverty line. And on that measure, 50% of New Zealanders would be unable to do that. So they are the class is precarious, according to a certain definition. And I think that's the fourth, fourth worst position in the OECD. So, you know, a lot of New Zealanders who are really in a pretty precarious position when it comes to job loss. And of course, that'll be partly because of um, continuing poor productivity and, and poor low pay rates. So I think there's at least a plausible argument that social insurance could help with minimising wage scarring, with ensuring that people are better matched to the jobs that are really fit for them, that they can find good jobs, not the first ones that come along. Um, there's a few other rationales that are stated for social insurance around providing sort of another automatic stabiliser, so greater payments going to people when the economy is struggling, um, although I find that a little bit less compelling as an argument. Also an argument, I think, about, about de-risking certain kinds of jobs, about encouraging people to take up jobs in areas that might be at higher risk of unemployment 
by reassuring people that if they do experience sudden job loss in this risky area, they, there will be some cushioning for that. So those are the rationales that are, adv- that are advanced and which I, I find reasonably compelling. You know, of course, when it comes to a major change like this, you do have to think, you know, okay, so you, you have a, a reasonable sort of definition of a problem, but what are the other alternatives? You know, is, is social insurance the best option? And the, the discussion document does provide some discussion of those alternatives, although I think it, it could have been a lot better than it was. Nonetheless, I broadly agree with its conclusion um, that social insurance does offer advantages that other ways of trying to solve this problem wouldn't. One other possibility would be introducing compulsory redundancy provisions into New Zealand law. I think there's some potential issues with that, including the fact that particularly for companies that go under, uh, they may not be in a position to pay redundancy payments, although you could, of course, try to force them to set those aside ahead of time. Um, But perhaps more significantly, redundancy payments tend to favour probably people from my demographic, people who have been in employment for longer periods of time because they tend to be linked to job tenure. Whereas I think, and I'll come on to this in a moment, I think the distributional implications of social insurance would be a bit different. You could, of course, encourage greater reliance on private savings. And, you know, of course, in you know, I think in any sort of social democratic society, there is some responsibility on people to do that. You know, and we can, we see that in the form of retirement savings, of course, with KiwiSaver. Um, however, I personally wouldn't be in favour of this for that kind of sort of job loss cushioning. Um, if you just left it up to individuals, I think there is pretty significant myopia. I mean, people don't save enough or often can't save enough just because wage rates are so low. And, and also people, it is very hard to predict you know, a lot of these big picture questions about when are you going to be made redundant and how much should you be putting away for it. We could, of course, compel individuals to save, um, but then I think that would be a pretty poor outcome from a, from a fairness, from an equity, from a distributional point of view, because, of course, you know, people on lower incomes with interrupted work histories would have less ability to put money away or would find it much difficult, more difficult to do so. Whereas conversely, uh, part of the point about social insurance is it is levied on all people in the paid workforce, but then there is an element of risk pooling in the sense that the payouts go to those who are most affected by job loss, and I'll come on to that more in a moment. Another option, of course, would just be enhancing the capacity of the core welfare state, the core benefit system to cushion job loss for people. And again, I'll sort of touch on this at the end, but... Yeah, I mean, and I certainly support, you know, much more generous core benefits, but I certainly don't think that the core benefit system could ever afford to pay everyone the equivalent of, you know, what social insurance is trying to do. And I think it's a, it's a different thing. It's more about cushioning the effects of job loss rather than maintaining people's sort of basic dignity and, you know, providing people with, an, with a long-term income when they have no uh, income from paid work. And I think the political economy of a very large increase to benefit payments of the scale that's proposed here with social insurance would just be untenable. But as I say, there is a case for greater welfare payments, and I'll come on to that just at the end. Lastly, from a distributional, well, almost uh, penultimately, from a distributional point of view, one of the things that I think is attractive about the scheme is that within the ambit of those who are covered by it, which of course is not all New Zealanders, but within that ambit, I think it is going to be positive from an egalitarian point of view, because it'll be a flat rate levy, of course, but that means that certainly in dollar amounts, those on the highest incomes will make the greatest contribution into the pool of payments. 
but at least anecdotally, well, not just anecdotally, but I think people on higher incomes are unlikely to want to avail themselves of the scheme as much as others. You know, if you're a high earner and you lose your job, you've got really good networks, you may well already have another job lined up, or you, know, you won't want a big gap on your CV. So I think those people are less likely to make use of such a scheme. Conversely, the evidence from some of the background data that's been released with the scheme is that the people who would make most use of the scheme, i.e. those who are most impacted by involuntary job loss, are very much those who are worse off within the paid workforce. So the typical person who's redundant, made redundant, is on an income not much above the minimum wage, and they are disproportionately, very disproportionately likely to be Māori and very likely uh, to be young. So I think it's a scheme that will, to you know, a reasonably significant extent, levy the better paid workers from my demographic and provide support to the people who are most, most exposed to the disruption and the churn and the stress of involuntary job loss. Um, so I think that's positive. Of course, one key question is, does the scheme cover people who are in what's called non-standard employment? So casual workers, precarious workers, people on fixed term and seasonal work. The proposal in the scheme is that it would, and it would do that through a couple of concepts. One is expected income. So if you can make a claim that even if you weren't in a permanent job, if you had a pattern of work that led you to be able, you could reasonably expect future income, then you'll be eligible for the scheme just like permanent employees would. Um, and so I think that could bring into coverage a whole lot of the people who are most in need of coverage. Self-employed people remain the real challenge, but the consultation document has some ideas, has some different options for how you could try to deal with that really tricky question. So broadly, I'm in support of social insurance. My, I guess my one big reservation, as I've already signaled, is around the adequacy of the core benefit system, which I think, you know, has been improved by labour. Um, things like, you know, the core unemployment benefit and $90 a week, roughly speaking, higher than they were in 2017. There have been some real improvements. Nonetheless, as the Welfare Expert Advisory Group made clear, they are still a long way short of what would be sufficient to enable people to live with dignity. Uh, to ensure whakamana tangata, to use the, the Welfare Expert Advisory Group's phrase. Um, and it's very clear that if the government's going to meet its child poverty targets, for instance, you know, every two or three years, we need another equivalent of the families package, i.e. a $1 billion boost to people's incomes at the lower end. Should that have been a higher priority than spending over $3 billion a year on social insurance? I mean, yes, if you could only do one thing, I would have said that, you know, considering reform of the core welfare state was more important. However, the government has obviously made a political calculation that would just be untenable. And certainly, you know, spending three and a half billion dollars and levying employee, employers in order to put that money into core benefits would absolute non-starter from a political point of view. If you did it, you'd just get turfed out of government and the changes would be reversed and you wouldn't have achieved anything. So this is obviously partly a political choice in a world where government's sensitive to re-election and political economy. It would be nice if we didn't live in that world, but we do. And bearing in mind that we don't have the full suite probably of perfect choices in front of us, do I think that social insurance does useful things, even taking into consideration those caveats? Yes, I do. I certainly don't think it's perfect, but I'm sure Simon will elaborate on its imperfections, uh, and I look forward to his contribution on that. Kia ora. Kia ora, Max. Kia ora, Koto, everyone. 
I'm going to start by pulling back and looking at the big picture. This is a huge policy change for New Zealand. As Max says, it involves $3.5 billion of new spending. That's massive. The second way it's big, it's also a major philosophical shift in the way that we do income support in New Zealand. Now, we run a social welfare system. A social welfare system is based on setting a floor on family incomes to try and prevent poverty. Social insurance system, on the other hand, is about compensating individuals, not families, compensating individuals for their short-term, not their long-term, loss of market income. Now, while we have a system that is focused on supporting family incomes, at the same time, we currently have the ACC system, which is a form of individualized social insurance, which is compensation for the removal of the tort right that New Zealanders used to have to sue their employers if they had a workplace accident to make up for income loss. So we've removed that right from individual people and created a social insurance system for industrial accident. Now, this is probably the biggest single change to the New Zealand income support system since the introduction of ACC in 1974. And we need to think about this in terms of process. Think about the way we set ACC up. In 1966, the then national government uh, set up a royal commission, a royal commission being the uh, democratic institution that allows the broadest and most in-depth and least politicised form of public engagement. And the eventual implementation of Sir Owen, Owen Woodhouse's scheme was under a Labour government in 1974. So we have a long time period, we have a really good consultation process, and we have a degree of cross-spectrum political consensus. Now, I invite you to contrast as I go on this process with the one that we're in. Now, first, in terms of process, we've got unemployment insurance was not part of the Labour manifesto in terms of their income support policy. So if there was such a big and important problem out there, why didn't Labour articulate that problem as a clear part of their income support process policy? Why wasn't it discussed in the election campaign? In addition, Labour appear in pushing the scheme through to have broken two explicit manifesto promises. One, that there would be no new taxes, and clearly a employment levy uh, is a tax. And the second promise that appears to be broken is a promise to make the income support system less complicated. This is a clear, significant addition to systemic complexity. In addition, we have a government that has articulated at least two very large strategic priorities. One is climate change. The second is child poverty. Neither have been solved, yet we've got this problem that we didn't know existed as a priority, and it's having $3.5 billion allocated to it. This is very poor strategizing. The second process issue is we have a package which is called social insurance that's been developed largely outside public purview 
by Business New Zealand, which is a non-representative body of New Zealand business dominated by large private sector business organisations, and the NZCTU, which is largely dominated by middle-class public sector workers and covers 12% of people who are employed. Neither group is representative and neither group can speak on behalf of a large number of businesses and workers in New Zealand. Even within the NZCTU, there's been no democratic consultation on this matter. I'm a trade unionist. I'm a member of the TEU. It's been presented to us pretty much as a done deal as it's emerged in public. We have a discussion document, which Max has mentioned, that has a short pro forma consultation process of three months. Now, literally before I came to talk to you today, I received from MB 17 of the background papers. Halfway through the public consultation process, I now have the documentation I need as a specialist to try and make an informed public submission. That's appalling. Implementation of the scheme is planned before the 2023 election as a done deal. The government has already advertised the position of chief executive to run the new social insurance agency before it has received any public feedback on the discussion paper. Extraordinary. It suggests a very empty consultation process. We don't have good participative democracy here. I know Max is a big fan of it. Public participation, we've got zip. So we've got a, a flag of a policy conclusion nailed to a mast by a small and unrepresentative elite. Clearly, having nailed your cognitive flag to the mast, it is incredibly difficult to back out of this if you receive public submissions that have weight, because psychologically it's virtually impossible to do. So they've designed themselves, they've taken a fork in the road, and they've gone down a road where it's very hard cognitively to reverse out from. Now, you could say poor process, lack of consultation, poor public participation is not an aberration for this government. You can look at the Public Sector Act as something which operated along similar lines of delivering the conclusion they wanted and consulting on that conclusion, three waters, for example. But one wrong here doesn't make a right. And part of this, I think, is a political dynamic by a government which is in the rare position of having a majority, an absolute majority in the House. They've got a window of opportunity before they have to, at best, go into another coalition government. And it's we're in the zone of we want to ram something through regardless of anyone else while we have the power. So raw political power is what we've got on display at the moment. Now, I want to turn a bit to discussion of the public discussion document. And what we see here is poor policy as a consequence of a very poor process. Now, I'm going to make some assertions about that discussion document here, which I don't have time to degree, uh, deal with in, in detail, but I regard it as a very poor quality document. It's incomplete, it's narrow, it's misleading, it's low quality, and it contains a lot of assertion and analytical inconsistency. I'm going to cover a couple of those dimensions below. But effectively, what that discussion document does is it corrals the debate. It doesn't offer the public a range of choices where this choice has these strengths and these weaknesses, this choice has these strengths and weaknesses, and so on and so forth, through a range of choices. We are allowed 
you know, classic Henry Ford thing. You can have any colour you want for your car as long as it's black. We've got the black option here. There is no consideration, comparative consideration of the benefits and costs of alternative solutions to the problem compared to social unemployment insurance. That discussion document contains a pretty critical headline that says the forum, the forum being the government, CTU, Business New Zealand, secret cabal, considers the benefits of income insurance for job loss due to displacement or health conditions would outweigh its costs. Strong claim, but that's a risible claim. It's based on, at best, a discursive and non-quantified discussion of what are only a subset of benefits and costs of the scheme. Now, step back here. If you're going to set up an entirely new organisation, you're going to introduce an entirely new public scheme, and it costs $3 billion, that is utterly inadequate. Come along a bit to the problem definition, and Max has touched on it. The discussion document describes the objectives of the scheme in terms of what I would see as the policy problems this is attempting to address. I think the, let's start with the least important of these, and that's the counter-cyclical fiscal stabilisation that Max has talked about. Now, Treasury has said that it would give small to moderate counter-cyclical stabilisation. Cyclical stabilisation in New Zealand is the job of the Reserve Bank. You only need a fiscal stabiliser if the Reserve Bank can't or won't stabilise the economy through monetary policy. So those small or moderate effects that Treasury talk about are small or moderate effects in the absence of central bank intervention. In addition, if you're looking at automatic fiscal stabilisers, surely you look at a range of possibilities to address that problem, not one. Second issue is the wage scarring issue that Max has mentioned. Now, Dean Hislop, who is a former professor of economics at this august university, looked at this issue on behalf of the forum. He concluded that economic theory says that the impact of a social insurance scheme on wage scarring is theoretically ambiguous. The empirical evidence suggests it has no effect on wage scarring. So we can put that aside as a problem that social unemployment insurance solves. The problem that I want to spend the most time on is the issue that Max has touched on, which is large income falls. Now, the problem actually isn't large income falls. If you read the literature on social unemployment insurance, it makes quite clear the point is not income falls, it's reductions in consumption. Only if consumption is utterly tied to current income are the two things synonymous. We know that they're not. There's very good evidence on that. The discussion document contains no comprehensive assessment of what is currently in place to address those consumption smoothing problems. Because it doesn't do that, it does not examine the implications of introducing a social insurance scheme merely for replacing what is currently in existence. The issue here is what the issue of what we describe as additionality. So how much additional protection does social insurance create or how much does it simply crowd out or replace or give a windfall to what people are already doing. Now, Max has already mentioned the social welfare system as a really important part of what we currently have in place to help people smooth their consumption. 
the more adequate we make the social welfare system, the less space there is for social unemployment insurance to fill in the gap. They are substitutes. They are not perfect substitutes, but they substitute for one another. The second thing that is out there is what labor economists call compensating variations. And that is the fact that people are active in managing their affairs and they have information. And if they find a job where there is a high risk of job loss, then a compensating variation can arise in the labor market for the risks that you take on if you are more likely to lose your job. Are compensating variations perfect? No, they're not. But no solution is ever perfect, including social unemployment insurance. The second thing we have is redundancy entitlements. Now, I was a co-author of the OECD work that uh, Max referred to, and that work found that in the early 2010s, the average New Zealand worker had a redundancy entitlement of about $27,000. That's a lot of money. It's over half the average or the median wage. People have access to savings, including KiwiSaver, if times are tough. 15% of New Zealand households have private income insurance or health insurance, uh, income insurance against health adverse consequences. People have access to partners. So if you lose your job, your consumption is smoothed. If you have a partner who is earning in the labour market, about half the people in New Zealand who lose their jobs have a partner who is working. And that cushions one against the shock. There's the bank of mum and dad that exists for many people that helps people smooth consumption. You lose your job, you move back in with mum and dad. They pay for your rent, they pay for your food. Now, international evidence suggests that all of these current institutions work to smooth consumption following job loss. They work considerably, but they work imperfectly. They work better in the short term of a week to six months, which is the period for which social unemployment insurance is focused, rather than well in the long run. Let's be aware that social unemployment insurance is a system where, which has its own problems, even, even on its own terms. It's a one-size-fits-all program. You have no choice about how long it lasts. You have no choice about the premium you would choose to pay. You're in the system. You receive the same benefit, regardless of whether you want a benefit of that size or not. Other issues here, there is no analysis in the discussion document of the differences between the legal and economic incidence of the employer levy. It's clear to me that Business New Zealand support the scheme because they believe they can pass on a considerable, if not all, of a chunk of the employer levy onto their workforce, either by lowering wages of people who are in new contracts of people who are coming in or lowering their redundancy entitlements. And you could say, well, the unions are going to prevent that. Well, sorry, the area where Business New Zealand are operating is not really very unionised. Sure, the unions will prevent that in the public service, but that doesn't really matter. In terms of the equity issues, there's a copious amount of theoretical and empirical research that concludes that insurance-based systems primarily about redistributing income across an individual's life cycle rather than between rich and poor. And that evidence comes from social insurance systems which are miserly like the United States or generous like Sweden. They're not about 
addressing equity issues between rich and poor people. Max has argued that uh, the type of people who are more likely to get SUIs, social unemployment insurance, are disadvantaged people. There is some evidence of gradients in terms of income and education, but they're not especially strong. The differences in a white-collar worker being laid off and a blue-collar worker are pretty small. The last issue I wish to touch on is the issue of the dynamics and statics of creating a much more dichotomized income support system. There's always been narratives of the deserving and undeserving poor. And clearly, by placing social unemployment insurance along with ACC, you are creating a very dichotomized system where the welfare system is for poor people, the underclass, the ACC social unemployment insurance are for the deserving poor. Now, the further dynamic here is that you can create a system where middle class voice and use is concentrated in one institution and not the other. There's two narratives here about the dynamic that can happen. Jonathan Boston has run the story is if we give the middle classes something in terms of a social unemployment insurance system, they'll feel a sort of spontaneous generosity to build up the welfare system. And of course, if you build up the welfare system, well, you create less space for unemployment insurance in the first place. Put that aside. The alternative story is that I'm all right, Jack. I'm being looked after via ACC social unemployment insurance, us versus them, the bad welfare lot. And we progressively expand a middle class welfare system, a middle class insurance system, and the bad welfare system stagnates and becomes increasingly stigmatized and bereft of middle class voice. Now, ultimately, what happens here is an empirical question because we don't really have particularly good evidence on which way things are going to go. And I guess the question I have for Max and others who are seriously concerned about equity is, do you want to roll that dice? And that's a good time for me to stop. All right. Well, thanks very much for that, Simon. So Lauren has said, thank you to everyone for joining us today for this webinar. And the recording will be sent out when it's ready. So I guess it just remains to say thank you very much to Simon. Thank you very much to Victoria for organising Victoria University for organising the session and thank you all very much for participating. Ka kite To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki, New Zealand School of Music alumni Stefan Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere Rā.